My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Alicia Owen and Cheryl Jarvis. Certain institutions that are part of the state get perceived in starkly different ways by different segments of the population, generally because they get experienced in starkly different ways. So, for instance, it's common for folks who've never had to have anything to do with the social assistance system to regard it as a source of uncomplicated benevolence for poor people. They might support that, they might oppose it, but that's mostly how they see it. Most people who are actually on the system, however, have a much clearer sense of how, yes, it provides much-needed support, but not only is that support vastly inadequate, but the system can also be intensely regulatory, oppressive, and even abusive. Or to take an even starker example, consider the police, and the divides in how they are experienced that have been given mainstream visibility by the organizing led by black youth in cities across the continent over the last couple of years. Another kind of institution of this sort is the child welfare system. People who have never had to interact with it, or who perhaps know of it only through news stories that mention its interventions in cases of especially horrific abuse, tend to regard it as purely benevolent, maybe in need of a tweak here or there, but fundamentally good. Yet for many of the women who find themselves and their children caught up in the child welfare system, it is a source of harm, a source of stigma, and a source of trauma. Mostly, it intervenes not in situations of abuse or gross neglect, but in more everyday sorts of situations in which women and their families are having a hard time and need some support. Except rather than providing that support, many women experience the child welfare system as intervening in ways that make everything worse. It is the part of the state that often intervenes instead of our society making sure that marginalized women and their families have the supports they need in the face of violence, poverty, addiction, and so many other issues. Alicia Owen and Cheryl Jarvis are part of Community Action for Families, a three-year-old group based in Toronto. Initiated by Jarvis, the group brings together grassroots women with lived experience of the child welfare system and allies in the agency sector who have a critical analysis of that system. For their first two years, their biggest focus was on providing various forms of direct support to women who were dealing with the system. Over the last year, they've continued to do that, but have stepped up their work doing political and popular education, both with women who have lived experience and with frontline service providers, and they are in the early stages of a five-year plan to develop new, non-institutional, non-coercive ways of actually supporting women and their families. Owen and Jarvis talk with me about their own struggles with the child welfare system, about community action for families, and about the changes needed to truly support marginalized women. We spoke by Skype to Phone from Toronto. My name's Cheryl Jarvis. I define myself as a mom, a feminist, uh, progressive generally. Community Action for Families is an organization that I started with a group of other women just over three years ago. And the purpose being to provide support and also to engage politically 
around the issue of child welfare and how it impacts women's lives, women and children, in really horrific and terrifying ways. So there's a lot of things that we've done over those three years. The past year has really kicked up into higher gear around the political action. My name's Felicia Owen. I've been a member of Community Action for Families for about a year now. I was introduced to the organization through a counselor of mine. I'm a mother of two daughters, and I've been kind of battling the child welfare system and the family court system for three years now. So I became very involved with Community Action for Families, first off for support, and then more engaging in the political side and trying to help bring awareness and kind of battle the stigma around quote-unquote bad moms and, like Cheryl said, just the trauma that the child welfare system inflicts on families. My path to being involved with Community Action for Families is lived experience. My children were apprehended when they were 18 months and 7 years old. The reason that the child welfare system gave was drug use, It's really complicated though, right? Lots of things are connected and interwoven with that. For myself, as well as the majority of women who use drugs or alcohol in a chaotic way, it's almost exclusively connected to violence or trauma of some kind. And certainly was the case for me. And just sort of sitting with that, you know, I've had this whole lifetime, my childhood, my young adult life, full of violence of one kind or another. And then not having places or spaces to reach out to for support, having tried, I actually called a crisis line one time because I didn't know where else to call. I thought, well, I sort of have this feeling that there's supposed to be resources or help out there for me somewhere, but I don't know how or where to find it. So I called this crisis line, told the woman my story, that I was struggling with poverty, I couldn't pay the bills, I had this history of violence. I'm a young mom. I'm pregnant with my second child. And her response after listening to my whole story was, well, had I thought about calling a friend and going shopping? (laughs) So I really just, I think I was kind of shocked and taken aback by that. And I just thought, God, there's no help for us. We're really on our own here. And so I got to a place that my life just really felt like it was not in my control in any way, shape or form anymore. I think the crux of the issue is that we turn to and rely on institutions to resolve these really complex issues that they're ill-equipped to do. We really need to be supporting one another. And so these were the kinds of things that were flowing through my mind over a course of many years watching, you know, my children grow up and my younger daughter be sort of bounced from home to home to home and both of them in different ways, having really unstable childhoods that were completely unnecessary. It didn't need to go down that way. And then becoming angry, you know, as the years passed and I continued to see the impacts on my children, who are 19 and 25 now, and it's so unjust and so uncalled for. And the anger just continued building until I thought, I have got to find a way to direct this more productively or... I don't know where it's going to go or where I'm going to land. So I reached out to people who were like-minded. I knew a few at the time. And we got together for an initial meeting to discuss all of these issues. You know, women and violence, women and drug use, mothers and drug use, 
the supposed societal shame and blame of the impropriety of that role. You know, motherhood, drug use, good moms don't use drugs. All of that kind of nonsense really oversimplifies the issues and looks through a narrow lens. So lo and behold, a group of maybe 15 of us went and got together and discussed this issue and Community Action for Families was born. My story starts from when I was very young. Children's Aid was kind of a generational situation. I grew up very chaotic. My mother grew up very chaotic. My nana grew up very chaotic, and we were all placed in the child welfare system. My caregivers were drug addicts in and out of prison, had mental health issues. It was just very, very chaotic for a young child, a lot of issues to deal with. So I was placed in Children's Aid. When I came out of Children's Aid, I was 14. I was a constant runaway. I didn't like it. They separated me from my family. At 14, like I said, I ran away and I began using drugs and was actively using up until the time I was 21 when I found out I was pregnant with my first daughter. I quit and Children's Aid was involved. I did everything I was supposed to do. They let her come home from the hospital. Everything went really, really smoothly and great. I had my second daughter when I was 27, and the relationship I was in with her dad just didn't work out, and it fell apart, and I ended up leaving him. And as soon as I left him, he started to use the child welfare system, the police, the family court system, all as weapons against me. The child welfare system is very well known for bringing up your past. If you have a past file with them, they will pull that up and use it against you no matter what your situation is currently. So that's what happened. I was just constantly defending myself and trying to disprove what he was saying. I ended up going into another relationship. The man I was with became very abusive, physically abusive, mentally abusive to myself. And the police were coming to my door to do safety welfare checks from my children's father calling them all the time. I was afraid to tell the police everything because children's aid was involved. I didn't want them to take my children. But the moment my abuser said something to my oldest daughter, I packed up my stuff and I left. And Children's Aid has a policy now where a mother who is a victim of domestic abuse is considered neglectful of her children because she is failing to protect her children from her abuse. So Children's Aid said I was a neglectful mom. During this time, I asked my children's father, can you please take our daughters for a couple of weeks while I get a place, I get my stuff. He agreed. I would go out and see them. I would talk to him on the phone. He knew where I was. And my children's father had been in contact with Children's Aid, had been to family court, and I had been stripped of custody of both my daughters because he had told them that I had dropped them off for a weekend and nobody had heard from me since. So they stripped my custody. And needless to say, I did not handle it very well. I was in complete disbelief. I was in shock. And I was heartbroken. So I began to drink to numb my pain. That did not help my situation, needless to say. So for about six months, I numbed myself with drinking, and very slowly I started to come out of it. My life that way is okay right now. For a very long time, I had to have my visit supervised at a children's aid office, which was extremely traumatic for my daughters. It took a very long time to get out of that, but I have been fighting for almost three years now. I have not been able to tuck my children into bed. I haven't been able to read them bedtime stories. Just last week, I missed my youngest daughter's first day of kindergarten. As a mother, those things are very, very hard to accept and to come out whole and intact from. 
you know, it's traumatizing for me, but even more so for my children who are wondering, well, why can't I come and live with mommy? Why can't I spend overnight? Why can't mommy pick me up from school? You know, I'm not going to bring my adult issues to my children and bring all the politics of the system to my children. So what do you say to them? When I came into Community Action for Families, I was here more for support, and it was actually a very hard group to find. I tried to find something for a long time that was based around moms who were separated from their kids, and there was just nothing. And I think part of it is the stigma. For me personally, it's taken me just up until recently to be able to tell my story. Some of my family still doesn't know that my children don't live with me because I don't want that judgment. I don't want that stigma on top of everything already. But I think it's very hard for women who are in the situation to find support and to find help and to find somebody to be able to trust with their real raw emotions about what's going on and to not have it used against them. And a lot of the moms that I have met, it's yes, you know, children they maybe need for physical abuse, sexual abuse, extreme neglect. But 95% of cases that they take on where children are apprehended are cases of quote-unquote neglect. And it's very simple thing from a mother feeling overwhelmed because she's a single parent and their child is apprehended. You know, their house is a little bit messy. Their child is apprehended. They live in poverty. They don't have enough money to buy brand new clothes for their kid or the kid has a woman's shirt. Well, you're neglecting your kid and your child is taken. Instead of offering support in those situations where most of the moms are immigrants, live below the poverty line, have previous involvement in the system or have issues with drug use, they target those women because of those issues and instead of supporting and trying to find a way for those women to come out of those situations, they just tear families apart. And tearing the families apart just traumatizes the mother, the child. It makes it so much harder to crawl out from the situation you are in. Tell me more about the work that Community Action for Families has been doing. We spent a lot of time defining what is the problem. We've created a document that was titled the same, you know, defining the problem. What is the problem in our eyes with child welfare? And it is all of the things that Alicia was mentioning about discrimination, racism, classism, sexism. So we agreed that, you know, there were some fundamental structural things going on. Intersectional anti-oppression was the lens that we were looking through, I think. So looking at things from a systemic perspective as well as a personal perspective. How is this affecting women individually, women and children individually, and what is a larger systemic connection? So those are the kinds of conversations we had in that first meeting. And then it was, what are we going to do about it? What can be done about it? And that is a really complex answer. And I think that's why we started first with the interpersonal, one-on-one, direct support kind of things, because it took us a little while as a group to develop a deeper analysis and also really get our bearings around what could work in regards to solution-focused pieces. And we really believe these solutions are not just for this issue, but for almost any kind of discrimination are really connecting with one another in a genuine way and knowing one another's stories and being able to look at one another as human beings and equals. And I can say that quite easily, but it's a really complex and difficult thing for people to really get a hold of. You have to be open to learning and seeing the world in a way that you might not have thought about before. 
often that in itself is a long process for people to get to even that place of being. And if you do reach a place of being open where you want to learn more, you suddenly realize that maybe your experience or the experience of those around you are not the only experiences to be had. You know, people experience the world in different ways. And a lot of that is connected to gender, race, and class, all of those kinds of things. So, yeah, we've really applied, I would say, a harm reduction, anti-oppression, and feminist framework to the work that we do, especially because we're working with women who are so vulnerable. We have to be responsible about continuing to develop that analysis and apply it thoughtfully and over time to our programs and services to give the time that's necessary to make sure that we are providing support and engaging with the community in ways that are not creating additional harm inadvertently. So, yeah, that was the first meeting and sort of where it went. Maybe the first two years, we really focused on providing direct supports for moms and trying to build up the organization in that way. Some examples of direct support would be like we did a monthly support group, which has become a weekly one just recently. We do court support. We attend court support with women. We accompany women to their child welfare appointments and just generally try to be supportive. So sometimes even that involves telephone support, you know, sharing our personal phone numbers, inviting women to our homes and building genuine friendships and connections to one another that has previously been missing in women's lives because that's one of the things, you know, women are so isolated and it makes us more vulnerable to the system. So that's the direct support that we provide. And like I said, all the way along, but particularly the last year, We've really begun engaging more in community action through education and awareness building primarily. And that has included a whole host of things. We've done a lot of trainings with various agencies around the greater Toronto area where community actions for families is developing, providing trainings, and really using the creative resources that the women bring to the group. Women have all kinds of skills and knowledge and abilities, and we draw from that and it really makes the trainings something unique that I think people connect with in a particular way that we're aiming for, which is more genuine, which opens discussion in a way that feels safer to people to really talk about some of the complex pieces that are kind of scary to talk about in a real way for people. And we did Jane's Walk this year as well. And Jane's Walk is a free resident-led walking tour of an area that's used in many different places as a form of public education or public conversation. This form of activity was originally inspired by Canadian feminist urbanist Jane Jacobs. So we thought, you know, how can we politicize this walk around our issue? and offered it to Torontonians. We did like a tour of the downtown core child welfare system, and we told some stories, went on a walk, attended some key places and spaces that belong to child welfare in downtown Toronto, talked a bit about the history of the organization and also the impact that it's had for many populations throughout that history in Canada, right up until the current day. And women shared their personal stories And we actually had a really good turnout, I think better than we had been planning for. People are really interested in this. It's being talked about more openly, 
people are becoming more aware of the fact that, you know, it's really problematic to turn over the care of people to systems. It doesn't work. So I'm just going to back up for a moment. Some of the programs and services and educational advocacy that we have been doing has primarily been with the shelter system, the violence against women systems and harm reduction focused networks that work primarily with women. And our hope is to reduce shame and stigma to provide a place where women can come and feel safe, but also begin learning. So we provide education both to women with lived experience and to frontline workers who support us. And the primary focus, I think, of those workshops and learnings and education for women with lived experience is what is the connection of these things that are happening to me to the larger world. Because women are really encouraged to believe that there is something wrong with us as an individual, that we are so messed up beyond belief and there's no one else like us on the planet. There's something just wrong with you. And so when women can come together and we start learning that our stories have a lot of similarities, that it's not just us. And actually the system has a tremendous amount of power and control. Yeah, like Cheryl was saying, you are made to feel like you are alone. Like I'm very much into the support aspect of the community action for families. So with the hotline and the personal support, the coffee support, the telephone support, the court support, the going into the actual meetings with women, with the child welfare workers, the advocacy training, those are all big things just to let women know like you are not alone and someone is here to stand with you. So some of it is education for women by women with lived experience and the other pieces that we're providing are to workers. So we actually, out of the James Fund, received a small community grant to develop a series of training workshops. Three or four of those will be for women and will focus on self-advocacy and rights-based pieces. And also, at least one of those three or four will be how to set up your own community action for families or other support group related to the same work in your area of the city, the province, the country. And then one or two of those workshops will be for frontline workers around how to better support the women that you're working with, how to better advocate for the women that you're working with. Often these frontline workers who also are primarily women are called upon to testify in court. So the frontline worker is in a really powerful position to advocate for women. And we found that actually it's a really strong strategy to have yourself tied to somebody who is in a place of employment and who has a good solid analysis around systems and can speak to your strengths instead of focusing on and interpreting women's experiences as weakness. I really see a lot of strength. In fact, primarily what I see is strength in the women that we work with. But the context of women's lives, the impact and the effect of violence in women's lives tends to be dismissed. So if you could make changes to the system, add supports, for example, what are the top two or three things that you would change or add to make it all more supportive for women and their children? I think my biggest thing would be to get rid of apprehension unless it's extreme circumstances. 
I really strongly believe families should not be torn apart or separated. I think that the support should be there where if they feel there's an issue, they should do everything in their power to support you out of that situation and to see, like Cheryl was saying, like from a human perspective, if their daughter or their sister was going through something like these women are going through that they're working with, you know, would they see it from a human perspective or would they see it from a worker perspective? If it was their own family, Mm -hmm. they would see it from a human perspective. It's very disheartening that it's almost like a machine now. I think that's a good one. I would even go a step further and say that we just can't have these institutions anymore. We need to find a better way as a society, and that better way is going to be more community-based approach. Absolutely. So we have developed a strategic plan, a three- to five-year plan, and towards the end of that plan, there are a couple of services that we're hoping to provide. Basically, what we're working towards, hopefully for the five years, is we'd like to get together a 24-hour daycare to provide to moms. Also, like I said, we're working on the 24-hour support hotline. Also, what we would really like to do is to have mothers who are facing the system who are at risk of having their children apprehended, we'd like to be able to place those mothers, the children, families into a home with another mom and her family as an alternative to the apprehension, an alternative support system outside of the child welfare system where that mother could guide in a community-based way that's not going to be traumatizing and abusive and oppressive and add further harm to the situation. So that, I think, is our ultimate end goal Mm -hmm. is to be able to place families within another family as a support, as an alternative to the child welfare system and apprehension. Those are some of our goals in a nutshell. The next six months, there's actually October 24th, we're doing an organization raiser. So that's sort of a spinoff of the fundraiser. And we're inviting members of the community with their knowledge and expertise to come in and help us lay out the details of our strategic plan. So we've a number of goals and directions that we've decided upon as an organization. And now we're turning to the community, to our wider networks, to say, how can we enact these? How can you help us strengthen as an organization? And how can we reach our five-year strategic plan? And also asking for some funds. <laughs> you know, if people can make some donations or direct us to a community grants, that kind of thing. Then there's the James Watt grant, which we're developing right now. And there are some discussions in the works around other partnerships and other trainings and educational opportunities with a number of agencies in the Toronto area, primarily that are dealing with harm reduction issues that affect women, drug-related issues that affect women, and issues of violence against women. You have been listening to my interview with Alicia Owen and Cheryl Jarvis of Community Action for Families. To learn more about their work, search for Community Action for Families on Facebook. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.